So we have another very special guest here on the Quick Blog Podcast. We have the privilege of welcoming a fellow Sydney cider, Daniel Beswick, uh, part of the wonderful Emerging Cricket team, where they produce a lot of great content on the Emerging uh, side of the game, which is what we're going to talk about today. I'm um, really, really looking forward to it, Daniel. Welcome to the Quick Blog Podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's uh, great to kind of be on the on the other side, answering questions instead of asking them. Looking looking forward to it. Yeah, so welcome, welcome, Daniel, to the podcast, and let's straight dive into it. The first question we ask all our guests is, where did the cricket journey began, and what has what role has cricket played in your life? Oh, I can't really think of a time where cricket didn't really play a part um, in my life. I think the first kind of memories I do have sort of in the living room of our of the, the house that I grew up in, uh, in Saratoga on the central coast of New South Wales. And my dad, who, um, you know, built fences by, by trade, he made a, a set of stumps for the living room, which we would throw the ball at. Um, as practice and, and he would get me involved in it was kangaroo cricket back then now yeah. you know milo cricket and and all of that um and my first real memory of, of memory of watching cricket is it's actually a strange one it's actually cricket that i wasn't even alive for so when i was sick from preschool or school or whatever we had a couple of cassette tapes and we had the extended highlights of the 1989 ashes series and I was born in 1993, so I wasn't wasn't alive for it. Um, and and watching those back, um, watching Steve Waugh just completely light up that 1989 Ashes series, um, the Marsh Tail opening partnership at, at Trent Bridge is kind of the first thing I remember. And then I think the first tour I remember Australia hosting, I think it was when India and, and Sri Lanka came out here. It might have been 98, 99, maybe the year before. Um, and my task was to essentially, you know, remember the Sri Lankan first 11 from top to bottom and, and to get all their names right. And I think going to my, my nan's house and my nan was, she had a big part in, in, uh, introducing the game to, to my dad, you know, when she immigrated from, from the UK to, to Australia and she was a big sports fan, sports fan, but she kind of lamented, not really being able to play cricket, you know, in, in those times and having to play hockey instead because of the, the kind of um, gender inequality, I suppose, you know, perceived at that time. And, and yeah, just always um, kind of been indoctrinated to, to love cricket. I don't really think there was any other option for me. There was football in the winter, soccer in the winter mm. and, and cricket in the summer and yeah, signed up as a five or a six-year-old for kangaroo cricket and didn't really look back, I don't think. That's uh, that's a great story. Like every Australian, so it began with backyard cricket and playing yeah. with your parents and playing with your siblings. Yeah, I, I was lucky. I had uh, an older cousin who was, I think, five years older than me, and he turned around one day when um, when I was playing, um, you know, a little bit further along in, in cricket, and he said, "Mate, you, you, I've got no shoulders left because you know I just spent you know all my afternoons bowling to you in in, in the backyard at." at Nan's house, but yeah, so, so lucky to have people who were just yeah in love with the game and, and yeah, I didn't really have any other option. Take that as a compliment. You're batting for, for hours then, <laughs> yeah. not getting out. Um, yeah. Did translate into the middle, unfortunately. I think it's the same, like whenever I look at a particular backyard, I look at how I can set it up from a backyard cricket perspective. I think my wife even knows that about me. She looks at a backyard and says, Oh, you'd really love to play cricket on this. Wouldn't you? So, um, it lives in the blood, a love for cricket. Yeah, um, we were definitely. lucky. It was a, 
a big concrete slab, sort of the width <laughs> of the house at my parents' house, and that was essentially a pitch. And oh, and I wonder why you I didn't think. get out banging on concrete. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there were no real inconsistencies in the bounce yeah, there. And playing, we batted on a, we batted on a grassy with, with pitch and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we batted on a grassy track at Grandma's mid two thousands. I remember. Uh, we dusted up because of uh, how long, how much we play on it over the summer. <laughs> oh, and the uneven bounce and turn. It was the best though. Great memories. Great memories. Um, for, for you personally, Dan, you've been involved in working with Channel 7 for BBL. Um, but in terms of your passion for emerging cricket, what inspired you to, to be part of this? Yeah, it, it kind of goes back to, to the first question. I remember some of the early World Cups, ninety um, mm. nine and, and two thousand and three, and and seeing just different teams play in those tournaments, and um, being a kid and being kind of interested in in the globe and the world and, and flags and and stuff like that. I, I remember really enjoying just just watching different teams play. You know, I remember when Australia played Namibia in two thousand and three, and and Kenya having such a good tournament then in, in two thousand and three, and to be honest, I've always had this, this thinking that, you know, I can't see why the, the, the game isn't more worldwide. And, and, you know, as you get a little bit older and you read into it a little bit, you, you kind of understand how that came about, you know, the idea of colonialism and, and cricket tying into that through the, the 1900s. But to bring it a, a little bit further forward, I think in terms of emerging cricket, I, I was just fascinated by, uh, you know, people picking up a, a bat and ball in, in different places around yep. and, and dominating um, and, and talking to, and in terms of the emerging cricket movement, I, I was, um, I suppose, internet friends with uh, Tim Cutler, who was hmm. uh, then CEO of, of Hong Kong from 2015 to 2017. And I was actually uh, on assignment for, for Fox sports. I think it was 20 started 2017 and we were doing the Hong Kong blitz. We had rights to the blitz. And we needed to enter all these names uh, and players into the into the database, and we had no idea about any of, of the players from from some of the teams. So I I think I dropped him a line and said, "Hey, mate, just need some some info on on all these guys." And we kind of spoke from there, and uh, became a little bit frustrated the lack of cricket coverage in the associate world. And mm. fast forward that a little bit later on. Uh, a guy on, on Twitter by the name of Nick Skinner, but on Twitter, he's Copernicus Cricket. I actually knew Nick from the club that I played for back home, but I didn't realize at the time that he was Copernicus Cricket on Twitter. So I was just talking to this guy thinking, you know, having this conversation. I think St. Helena were having a, were holding a, a tournament and there was a stream up. And I think me and him might have been the only people watching it. And eventually Tim turned around and started a WhatsApp conversation in October 2018. He said... You know, I've had enough of you guys, your love in on, on Twitter, talking to each other. We need to sort of make this something a little bit bigger. And I actually didn't realize it was Nick that I was talking to under yeah, this, wow. this pseudonym. And I'd known Nick for, for a little while. Didn't really know he was into associate cricket like I was. But yeah, I think the three of us in, in starting the project, the whole idea was to just tell the stories of, of those that don't get covered. Uh, I mean, you look at mainstream cricket media and, and you understand why the, the big stories are the big stories because they, they generate a lot of uh, traction, a lot of attention. You know, there's a lot of big boards. There are a lot of big players. You know, the IPL started, that's big in its own right. But we were, you know, more than interested in, in trying to spread the game and, and the news in the game that's outside those big 
for members and to kind of show, you know, this is, this is the potential and, and this is what's going on elsewhere around the world. And uh, you, for, you touched on the World Cup side of things earlier. And my question relates to that, where do you think ICC and the big nations, the full member nations have missed a trick for the past few years with the, obviously with the current um, World Cup structure, that's the elephant in the room. And that's obviously a separate can of worms that, you know, I want to open, but it's, it, it can take its own. Uh, let's open um, it. You know, <laughs> couple of hours, I hated it. I'm, I'm I absolutely hate it. Chat. Absolutely yeah. hate and, it. <laughs> but where do you think, what's the solution to that? What's the feasible immediate solution to that? That's a million dollar question, Nash. Um, and, and looking at, at the way that, you know, it's gone over the last, you know, World Cup cycle and looking at 2019. And the big frustration for me with the 2019 World Cup was that that final, that epic, unbelievable final that we had overshadowed what was, I think personally a pretty poorly formatted tournament. You know, we had, had it not been for Sri Lanka beating England, I think about two right. weeks left of the group stage, You're right. we would have had about a fortnight of dead rubbers where the top four were already locked away yep. and every other match meant absolutely nothing. And, and someone on Twitter the other day came out and said, well, what about, South Africa's win against Australia in the last day of the group stage, it, it meant nothing because neither, neither team could gain anything from that. And I understand the thinking. I understand what the ICC is trying to achieve by having all of those four members play each other once. You know, there are metrics that need to be met in terms of TV viewership, in terms of sponsorship, revenue and all of that. But the thing that we kind of bemoan a lot of the time is you can have the best of both worlds there. You can make a format that is so encompassing of the world of cricket, but you also have those huge key matches. And the T20 World Cup is is a better example of what the 50 over World Cup should be, 16 teams. And yes, there is a play in first round, almost a glorified qualifier in a way. But there is the qualifying event, which was held uh, in August last year, which was fabulous in its own, its own right. And talking to a few people involved in that apparently is, is a big money spinner for the ICC too. So there is opportunity uh, in a lot of the associate members cricket and the, the lower four members. But yeah, to, to fix it, it's, it's a question that is worth so much money. And, and whoever comes up with, with the ideal solution will be set for life i'd like to say but yeah. yeah you can see where the icc is going in terms of its of its planning but the execution yep. isn't there and as a result you know there's resentment towards you know some of the big members and and the global body because the money and the pie is essentially kept to a very select few and and the world cup which is meant to be the opposite of that is anything yep. but yeah definitely and i think g i think the older format, that 16-team format, which was, I think, played last played in 2007, if I'm correct, in the, in the Caribbean, I think worked really well as well, where you saw teams like Bangladesh beating India, teams like Ireland beating Pakistan. So that sort of format really worked well. And do you think in the near future, we there is a high chance of seeing almost like a Division 2 of the World Cup going along, you know, at the same time as the full member, members are playing their actual World Cup? Yeah, it's funny. I think watching that World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe uh, in 2018 almost felt like 
a second World Cup because you know the teams there were ultra competitive and that was a great tournament. A few, mm. Had it not been for a couple of decisions, the West Indies miss out on a World Cup spot. And I would love to have seen what would have happened, you know, had that been the case, whether the ICC kind of backflipped on that. I'm actually of the belief, and my conspiracy theory is that, you know, if the West Indies didn't qualify for that World Cup, they would have pulled a few strings to, to make things a little bit different. Uh, yeah, and looking at 2007, I actually think I'm, I'm probably in the minority in my sort of associate union of fans. I actually kind of think that, the 16-team tournament in 2007, it probably didn't make as much sense then as it would now. I think the the perceived quality amongst the associate members is now as strong as it ever has been before. I think if we had that 16-team tournament again tomorrow, it would work infinitely better than it did in 2007. And it arguably was a great format in 2007. Yes, you know, India bemoaned the idea of not playing enough matches. There were teams that bombed out early and the ICC felt the kind of negative results and all of that. But again, 16 teams, it wouldn't necessarily have to be four groups of four. Uh, You could probably have two groups of eight or, you know, another format uh, similar to that. And the perceived quality, I think, across, across the world at the moment, I think is stronger than 2017. You look at Bermuda who, you know, their World Cup was kind of underlined, highlighted and boldened by one Dwayne Leverock catch in the slip court. And unfortunately, they can't really, you know, take home too much else from that tournament than that specific moment. But, you know, I look at, say, the four teams outside full membership who would, you know, qualify for a 16-team World Cup today. And there's so much quality across the board. You know, I could see several of them, you know, pulling off upsets in, in a, in a world cup and with a T20 world cup coming up later this year, I think, you know, we could well see that happen um, in front of our eyes in, in reality. And hopefully it leads to a, another question of that one day world cup pushing back to either a yep. 14 team tournament back into 2015 or yeah, ideally a 16 team tournament or, or even larger like 2007. That's, um, that's actually a perfect segue into my next question is which cricketing nation or nations do you think at the moment have the best chance of um, su- you know, having a successful next 10 or 15 years? I suppose it, it, it would depend on, on how you would qualify that success. I think in terms of popularity, and let, let's just say, let, let's just say, so, so, sorry to cut you off, but let's no, just no, say from, from where Afghanistan were 10 years ago and where they are now, let's, let's measure success on where Afghanistan were, you know, in 2010 and where they are into 2021. What, which sort of nation do you think has that potential to be the next, you know, we can call it the next Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I think the the first country that kind of comes to mind when you bring up that Afghanistan comparison is probably Nepal. Uh, yeah. and the sheer people power of the country, there's 30 million people. They've just come off winning a, a T20 international tri series. Yeah. The potential there is almost immeasurable, you know, and compare that to the USA. And it's funny. I keep coming around to both of those countries and look at them and they are so similar in that they're so very different as well. You know, two completely contrasting countries in terms of GDP uh, population and and other things like that. But they actually have 
their issues in why they haven't moved the game forward to an Afghanistan, for instance, are very similar. You know, the organization isn't quite there. There are a lot of different people trying to do the same things, not really linking together to make something so united and, and bold. And USA have an abundance of funding, but they can't organize, you know, what they want to do with that money. There's a lot of chefs in the kitchen, you know, too many cooks kind of analogy you could kind of use there. Nepal have these lofty ambitions, but again, everyone kind of wants to be that one guy that fixes everything. You know, there's the guy that wants to build a stadium. There's a guy that wants to build all the T20 leagues in the country. There's the guy that wants to build the national team. And if they were to amalgamate and bring themselves all together, the potential's endless. And and on the field, they're two high quality outfits. Uh, and USA have just come off having an under 19 national championship and the quality in that cricket was as good as you would see in an underage tournament at, at full member level. Uh, and they have guys who have the way that the USA is, is comprised of people, you know, a lot of people immigrate to, to parts of the USA we, we see second generation Americans coming from, you know, parts of the subcontinent, parts of the West Indies, uh, South Africa. There's a really look out for the name Slade Van State. And he's a, young bat from South Africa who's residing in the USA now. I honestly think that he has the potential of being something huge. That's a whole nother podcast topic. But mm. yeah, those are probably the two countries that I would probably earmark. And then on the field, there's so much quality. I'm a I'm really high on Namibia at the moment. Uh Namibia are a team that have a lot of depth uh at the very high end of their international um team. And they've just beaten South Africa emerging in a, in a T20 match. They're just hosting them in Vintook at the moment. And I think the best judge of an international team at the very top end is how good are the players that are being left out of the team. And mm. they've got a squad of 15 to 20 players who can all do a job at international level. And, you know, other teams that have qualified for this particular, the T20 World Cup coming up this year, I look at Oman. Oman have a lot of quality across the board, um, some excellent bowling. Papua New Guinea is a huge success story. They're probably a little bit too reliant on maybe one or two players, um, but their numbers participation-wise, you know, they've got something like 250,000 kids picking up a bat and a ball. And in 10 years' time, you know, who knows what that what that turns into. Yep. Um, Scotland, another team pushing for full membership and the potential uh, decoupling of test cricket from full membership. And that's the same with the Netherlands as well. The Netherlands have a bunch of guys in the county system. The top class uh, uh, attracts players from all around the world to, to play as they're overseas. Uh, there's guys there playing in the Netherlands now who hold Dutch passports from different parts of the world. And, you know, the idea of playing for the Dutch national team might be attractive to them. So, yeah, there's so many potential success stories in the next decade or so it'll just be a case of, of how they're ironed out and, and how they're best kind of harnessed between coaches administration and ultimately the organization of all those specific national bodies and and interesting you touched on immigration as well so what, what where do you where do you stand on the let's say icc's eligibility criteria for for players and then you have to deal with every individual nation's eligibility criteria for their own players. And there's so many parameters going on there just to play an international match. And I think for players, like the best example could be Corey Anderson, who I think a few months ago, I think uh, immigrated to USA 
to play international cricket yep. there but he's already an international in new zealand but for someone from coming from india who just wants to play cricket at a, at an international level or countries like pakistan sri lanka who can't quite get there because of the competition and this is another lucrative uh, you know uh, it, idea that they can pursue in their in their cricketing career where do you stand on the eligibility criteria and all those factors that you know countries have to consider it's a hugely divisive topic in the world mm. of associate cricket and i don't think we've ever got the right answer uh and i flip flop a little bit as well my belief is you know as as a cricketing country uh, or as a player you can only adhere to the rules that have been opened up by the icc so my opinion is of that you know for countries like the usa who you know might be dangling a carrot of international cricket for players who have played first class cricket in, in parts of the world looking to play international cricket for the USA, by all means, go ahead. I think if you still, you know, adhere to all the regulations of the ICC, you know, the ICC have set those rules. You're only playing within, you know, the remit of those rules. I think the drawback or the flip side of that is that a lot of teams who have tried to do that in the past actually haven't really achieved anything. So there's been a case and, and, you see it a lot from Nepali fans actually, because they're actually one of the countries that that never seem to benefit from something like this because all of their players are perceived as, as uh, brought up in their system organically to, Mm. you know, for the lack of a better term. But, you know, when you look at teams that are being comprised by ex first class players from full member countries, they haven't gone particularly well. And Nepal hosted the USA in, uh, one day matches last year as a part of cricket world cup league two which is a pathway event to the 2023 world cup and nepal bowled the usa out for 35 and they had a number of first class players from from different countries playing in that team just couldn't handle the the conditions of the tu ground and the spin friendly conditions and they couldn't handle sandeep Lamachane and friends so it's an interesting one and and for me yeah i have no qualms with with people going on and, and looking to kind of pursue international cricket because, you know, there's not a whole lot of money in associate cricket. You know, guys aren't really doing it for a quid. Yeah. You know, they're doing it for a, a lot of the time, a lot of these men and women who are playing international cricket for an adopted country are just the beneficiaries of, well, X might've moved to this country because of work opportunities or they've, yeah moved because of a partner and sure enough within three years they just so happen to be good enough to play international cricket for that particular country you know it's not as if someone wakes up in the morning and says i want to play international cricket for mexico and you know within three years it it happens you know i've talked to a lot of people involved in international in national governing bodies who get inbox messages you know every day from people saying look you know give me one chance i'll be the best all-rounder you've ever seen but one, there's no money in associate cricket. You're only moving to a country if you're moving for, you know, other financial opportunities, other work opportunities. And two, like no one would be able to, you know, afford, you know, that massive outlay of money. You know, the way that the ICC funding model works, I think Mexico received maybe 18,000 US dollars in funding, annual funding last financial year. And you compare that to, you know, someone at the very high end of the, the full membership. And I think the BCCI would probably get 
I think they'd have to get more funding than every associate member combined. Easily. Yep, and maybe, right. and maybe about 20 times over. Yeah, definitely. So, so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, people aren't moving to these countries just to play cricket for a country because they just want to be an international yeah. cricketer. Normally yep. they're, they're just there because of, of other opportunities and, and just fate that, that would have them there. As you know, talking about the old, the, the three year rule that that's in place at the moment, I don't think it really affects too much because I think, look, if you're going to stay three years, you're more than likely going to stay five years anyway. It's just a case of, of the timeline of when you get to play for that country eventually and when it eventually does happen. But personally, I, I think that I don't think it's really caused a, a huge issue, at least on the associate front. I mean, you could look at, at other particular cases. I mean, the Jofra Archer case is an interesting one, though I think he had it. Did he have an English passport through or an English citizenship through a family member? I can't I think, remember exactly. I think his, I think his mother was, had, a, had an English passport, uh, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, I think that's I what it was. I think. The, the MCC yeah. potentially changing that just before to make Jofra eligible. But I can't remember if that was just a an old wives tale that someone yeah. just twisted. And, to, and to I think of... that's, I think that's the perfect, that, that was actually going to be that, my next question is where do you see these countries almost bending rules and, you know, changing yeah. rules overnight? Best case I can think of is father Damod for Australia, who was just made a resident overnight just yeah. so he can play in the ashes as a, as a spinner. Where, where do you see that happening? Let's say in 10 years time, there's so much competition of, um, cricket and you know so much happening where do you see countries bending those rules yeah that's a good question uh, I honestly don't think I don't think in the long term it would really benefit an associate member to bring in someone under exceptional circumstances because I think that okay yes cricket is a sport as a team sport played by individuals, but we all know that the law of averages would probably tell you that one player doesn't make uh, an international team. It doesn't matter how good they are. Um, and thinking of that forward Ahmed example, I mean, yeah, there were a lot of issues around that and he was an asylum seeker, but, you know, most importantly to, you know, cricket Australia at that point, he bowled really good leg breaks and, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how it all came about. At that time, that was absolutely gold for Australia. Oh, yeah, we were we were running out of ideas at that point, weren't we? And again, I, I look at I look at the USA. They're probably the only country in the associate world who could realistically make that a viable strategy yep. for their international team. And we've kind of seen it already. Uh, Corey Anderson, Dane Pete from South Africa is another player who's gone over. There's talk of Liam Plunkett as well, but. I think if Liam Plunkett, once he's eligible, I think he's 38 years old or something ridiculous. I think he has an American partner. Um, and again, you know, looking at, at some of the examples of, of ex-first class and ex-international cricketers from full members, it, it hasn't really worked out. Uh, John Davison for, for Canada is probably one example of a guy, yep. you know, reaching the, the heights of associate international cricket at a World Cup. But... Yeah, he's not gonna he's not gonna make a campaign for you, and he's not gonna turn things around overnight, and he's certainly yep. not going to change the financial landscape for your associate member country in a way where cricket becomes a future financially for 
all of your players. You know, he, he's not going to be a money spinner for you. He's not going to rake in the commercial benefits of, of, yep. of all of cricket by just playing for your international team. But in saying that, you know, we, we've seen some success stories over the last year or two of countries rolling out central contract systems to, to, to players in Brazil. We've recently seen Malaysia do it on the women's side as well. So I think members now are a little bit smarter in, in how they go about stuff like that and what they can get away with. Uh, and get away with is probably a little bit harsh of a, of a way to sort of put it. But, and the other aspect too is if these countries were to be a part of, if their governing body was a part of their national Olympic committees, uh, they would see an influx of, of funding through that avenue as well. And and something that we harp on about, we, we talked about it just this week on the Emerging Cricket Podcast was Olympic funding and, and the game in the Olympics would have so much financial success for the game worldwide yeah. that it's just, it's just too good to ignore. You know, yeah. cricket is, it's kind of taken this kind of pretentious look at the Olympics over the years and, India now being water compliant and saying, you know, in the last week or two that, you know, India will send a team to the Olympics, you know, if it was an Olympic sport opens up huge opportunities for, for the entire cricketing world and the exposure of cricket to people who aren't cricketing inclined right now, you know, in seven years time, if it was to be played in, in Los Angeles, you know, the, the financial benefits and, and, and the windfalls from all of that are just, you know, the potential of all that is, is huge. Yeah. 100%. And inter- in- interesting you mentioned Olympics because do you do you think once cricket is a part of the Olympic you know scenario do you, countries like China Russia you know just spending millions and millions of dollars as they do with other sports uh, you know into cricket to get their teams up there Yeah that's that's a really interesting point R- Russia in their own individual right have a unique outlook in, in terms of cricket development as it is. And again, that's probably a, a completely different topic, but yeah, the, the potential that, you know, the game could, could reach by having that exposure in the mass through the mass media of a 16, 17 day Olympic period is incredible. Again, you know, when I think of the Olympics and watching sports at the Olympics every four years, I think, sit there and think to myself, you know, maybe I should take up table tennis. You know, I could be an Olympic table tennis player if I put in the effort and the time and, and I get good at it. But it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's front and center of everyone's consciousness. Uh, and there are so many Olympic sports out there that, you know, as Australians, we don't really think too much about, you know, I think of handball and when, yeah. you know, Australia had a handball team at the 2000 Olympics, we qualified automatically. Uh, and you speak to people involved in sports around, even around Australia, you know, every four years when we have an Olympics, they look at their membership numbers, you know, the six months afterwards and they think, oh, this is incredible. You know, this is what the exposure of the Olympics brings. And just having five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes on TV, you know, a kid in Peru or a kid in Cameroon sees Andre Russell pick up a bat and hit a six into the middle of next week. And he sits there and he thinks to himself or, or, her, or herself and thinks, you know, this is so cool. You know, I can do this, you know, this. Yep. And then, you know, the ball yep. starts to roll and 
you know, sure enough, th- those members are around, you know, there's 100 and, oh, I think I need to get the number right here. I think there's 105 members or 104 members of the ICC. So, you know, by, you know, there's a very good chance that every single one of these people have cricket being played in their country in, in some way or another. It's just about making those links, finding those people and linking, you know, two kids with a bat and ball together so they can bowl and bat, you know, against each other. It's, it's those little things, you know, it starts from a very micro level and 100%. the idea of it being, you know, from a macro level, we have a worldwide idea of cricket that encapsulates the world and doesn't just encapsulate the, the 12 full members or the, you know, the, the supposed big boys of, of the ICC, the, the cricketing table to, to feed off all of the profits and all of the money that the cricket brings. Cause cricket is a money spinner, you know, and the IPL has proven that so many competitions around the world have proven that, but there's, you know, there's potential of the game being so much bigger. There's so many commercial opportunities marketing opportunities and opportunities through the game that will yep. ultimately build the sport, but it yep. needs to be through those members yep. outside the full That's membership. Great. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, like we have, as you mentioned, over a hundred members of the ICC, but is cricket truly global yet? I, I don't think so yep. personally, even like for us, for me as an Australian, you know, we're very fortunate to have grown up watching a great Australian. So we see Australia very prominent in cricket, but the Olympics is a great opportunity to sort of even for the, not only for the kids in those countries, but for all the, for, for the adults to have a look at, Oh, what's this sport? This is interesting. And sort of opening the door up there. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel, we were speaking about the Olympics and what are your thoughts on the format same as soccer, where you send an under 23s team to the, to the Olympics. Mm. And so that, you know, the member, the full member nations, countries like India, Australia, England, South Africa can actually compete with the with the not so great you know countries right right now who are not that talented or skillful in their in their cricketing journey do you do you see that happening in the near future yeah well, when when we've spoken about potential olympic formats one idea that does get thrown about is that all the full member teams full member nations send an under 23s team or an underage team and the associate members um would be able to send a senior team. I don't know how that would be policed uh, from an Olympic standpoint, but I tend to think that if we were to have cricket at the Olympics and say we had a 16 team tournament, I think there wouldn't be too much of an issue of, of just having everyone's senior teams there, both on the men's and women's side. The, the idea, I think the, the big issue that the cricket has with itself, and it's almost a bit of an existential crisis that cricket has is, you know, what format of the game that would we actually play at the Olympics? And a lot of the discourse when it's been brought up, especially in the last, say, two to three years, is the idea that it needs to be T10. And yeah. to me, that I think would be a bit counterintuitive and it wouldn't be a product befitting. I don't think cricket would advertise itself as a quality product. If international teams were playing T10 cricket, a lot of people use the idea of T10 because they think there's some sort of time constraint in, in the way that the, the tournament would have to be run when in actual fact, you know, a lot of Olympic entrants for the actual, you know, Olympic period a lot of them are decided through qualification systems that start well before the actual games. So yep. there's no reason why you couldn't have qualifiers that 
could also double as World Cup qualifiers if you absolutely needed to by the ICC to just ensure that you had 16 teams or, you know, maybe if you absolutely had to an eight-team tournament for the Olympics proper. But the issue, and LA, to, to use LA as an example in 2028, you know, they're not short of turf wicket facilities in Los Angeles. There are actually quite a few around in in the area, uh, talking to a few people involved in, in cricket in that part of the world, there's six to eight turf wicket facilities in Los Angeles alone uh, for a potential Olympic site. So it's not as if there would have to be a lot of upkeep or a lot of new developments in that part of the world to enable Olympic cricket from a logistical facility standpoint. The issue tends to be how much cricket can we fit in into a period? And yep. spoke about this with, with a couple of people. The idea of the Olympics is it's so much different to a World Cup where at a Cricket World Cup, you don't want any games happening at the same time because you want all of the games running, all of them accessible at one point or another. The Olympics works a little bit differently. The Olympics is more of a carnival. You know, no one would be able to sit there and tell you that they've been able to watch every single event in every single sport for 16, 17 days. I mean, maybe the marathon on the last day when it's run by itself, but for cricket, there wouldn't be a reason why you couldn't have two group games being played at the same time. And with the advent of streaming and the, and the opening of Olympic rights to, to certain host providers, you would think that both of those matches would be available publicly to the general population. So if you wanted to watch India take on South Africa, that's being played at the same time as Australia playing Sri Lanka, then you could do it. You know, there's not a huge trouble there. It only seems to be an issue when people think that we have to have every single game running back to back to back. And not only that, I mean, if the facilities are the same for everyone and say you do have three or four games happening on the same day, both the teams playing in a specific match, have to deal with the facilities in the same way. So say you, you play the third or fourth game in a day and it's England take, oh, sorry, well, it'd be Great Britain in, in the Olympics. So that's, that's a whole, you know, new kettle of fish, but <laughs> let's, let's pit, let's pit Sri Lanka against Bangladesh on the third match of a day in the Olympics, you know, and the wicket's probably slow because they've had two games of cricket on that surface already. Both teams have that disadvantage you know it's not as if it really favors one team okay maybe you win the toss and you elect to maybe bat because you feel like it gets really really tired at the end of the day and you don't want to bat on it but there would still be that thinking in in the captain's mind after winning the tosses i'd I'd still want to chase a target even though it's on that tired surface so for me it just adds another element of strategy i don't think it takes away anything yeah and you just need i think that the member nations and and the olympic nations ultimately for for an Olympic Games, no matter where the Olympic Games is held, you know, if it's the same for everybody, I can't see why that's an issue. That's just something else that, you know, from a strategic standpoint, that's just something else that you have to factor in. But then why, why do you think it has taken so long for IOC and ICC to recognize that cricket could be a part of this carnival? Is it is it only because of the time constraint or do you almost see that ICC thinks that this this can be a real threat to the existing brand of the World Cup or the T20 World Cup? I'm not 100% sure what the opinion is of 
the Olympic, the International Olympic Committee and the National Olympic governing bodies. I'm not sure what their opinion of it is, but yep. to me, it seems from a cricketing point of view that cricket's been a little bit too proud to, to kind of turn around and say, look, you know, we want to be a part of the Olympics. I think for a long time, cricket has kind of distanced itself from the Olympic movement. And I, I don't know if that has ties to cricket's deep colonial roots or it's just a case of the game being a little bit too proud for its own good in the idea of trying to develop the game. And we have to sit here and, and make the judgment too that if you were to look at the, the big members of the International Cricket Council, do they really want the game so popular and so widespread that you know there's a question down the line of, well, do we have to split our cut of funding more to more and more members at a more even flat rate? So, you know, I, I look to India and I don't really want to make India a complete scapegoat in all of this, but they're one of the last, you know, cricketing countries to be world anti-doping agency compliant, which is a huge hurdle in, in terms of actually being recognized as a potential, you know, Olympic sport, you know, without India being wider compliant, they can't become a part of the national Olympic committee, but they would stand to, potentially lose their lion's share of funding if funding of cricket was spread a little bit further out among the other associate members. What I think India has to think about and how India have to think about all of this is that if every member is strong and if cricket is strong, India is still really strong. Like yeah. it's not it's not a case of it's not a zero sum game, right? If if Argentina tomorrow became a high end international cricketing member and they received a huge cut of funding that doesn't necessarily mean it comes out of the pocket of india and the other four members it would simply mean that well the financial model might be so good that argentina are generating all this income yep. that comes into this pot of money that everyone still shares and india more than likely still gets a lion's share of so it's a bigger the pie idea of cricket, yep. exactly you know mm. it, it's a rising tide floats all boats kind of thinking about all of this where I think India and, and several other members and, you know, the big three, you know, all of them are kind of guilty of, of all of this, especially yep. is that look like they are, they, they are sitting there and, and having their cake and eating it too, because they right now they can, I mean, test cricket is probably only really financially viable for about three members of the ICC right now. And if any of the other four members want progress in the sport, most of the time they have to kind of lean on the voting side of the big three to actually get anywhere. And that's a huge problem in cricket at the moment. You know, that's where cricket issues kind of start and end at. And from an Olympic point of view, if we were to get this, you know, this bigger pie of money to be equally, well, to be distributed in a similar fashion to what it is now, everyone still prospers. Okay. You get the uneven numbers, the uneven funds across the members, but everyone still kind of wins or everyone's better off than what we are today in 10, yeah. 15, 20 years time. Does cricket probably take too much of a short-term view, particularly these big threes. They're not looking long-term enough. That's, that's what it stems down to. Um, and I think the ICC is probably guilty of that as well. Don't you think? 
Yeah, and I think COVID's probably exacerbated a lot of that mm. as well. Um, looking at the way that Cricket Australia has dealt with its finances, they put a lot of money into the, the stock market of their sponsors in 2019. And as a result, with everything, you know, with everything going the way it did, you know, last year, it, it meant that, you know, the, the Cricket Australia was not in a good spot financially at all. And I suppose it is a little bit ironic that a lot of the associate members during COVID were absolutely fine because they only really spend money when they absolutely need to, when there's cricket on. And to be honest, with no cricket, they still received their ICC funding, albeit at a a cut rate. I don't think what, I don't think the discount was, sorry. I don't think the, the cut of their funding was as much as it normally is but they were kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs, not spending any money because a lot of the associate members don't have central contract systems. They don't have a huge outlay of money that they spend per annum on things. And as a result, associate cricketers were actually okay through the global pandemic, which was Mm. a really kind of twisted way that, that cricket kind of operates where, you know, you look at India, Australia, England, they were so desperate to hold international cricket during COVID Yep. Because they couldn't stand to lose the money if they didn't host international cricket. So yep. they're so reliant on cricket to happen. You know, when things happen like that, like a global pandemic, you know, that was you know largely unforeseen for, for a lot of us, you know, that wasn't in the prospectus. That wasn't in the, the top of mind of, of any of those big members. And it's funny, I think Wimbledon, completely different sport, but they were paying pandemic tax every year just in case there was a global pandemic and they were financially affected and they received some huge payout of money when things weren't going well financially. But to look at Australia, to look at the BCCI who have been so desperate to put cricket on, yes, we've benefited by watching that cricket and the players have benefited by playing cricket. They've absolutely needed to play that cricket. Otherwise, you know, who knows would have been the, the fallout of all that had they not. So, I can't even remember what the question was after that. I got a little bit sidetracked. Um, no, brilliant uh, insights. I mean, not a lot of fans would think of it that way. You know? We'd yeah. Think, well, you'd think, you'd think it, the associates it, would, would struggle more because they don't have the cricket and they don't have yeah, the exposure and, that they need. Mm. And in a weird roundabout way, it, it just meant that they could kind of sit there and consolidate. And we actually saw this, this year with uh, the ICC Development Awards and what, countries did around the world as an alternative to cricket they upskilled their staff they provided coaching umpiring and and scoring opportunities to different parts uh they they basically upskilled everyone in their organization they used the time to basically solidify their own credentials in in the cricket world without having to spend money an outlay of money to play international matches and you know at the opposite end of that Cricket Australia and, and the BCCI and the ECB were, were reeling when cricket wasn't being played. And that's why we saw such desperation to get international cricket up and running and TV rights deals being met and signed because they needed that. They, they rely on that financial income to provide everything else. And yeah, the associate members, you know, it, it's, it's a grim way of looking at it. But yeah, they, they didn't have that issue because they, they didn't need to outlay all that money. But but isn't there isn't there an all isn't there a role for these uh, the existing regional 
councils, let's say the Asian Cricket Council or the ICC Americas or the you know East Asia Pacific European Cricket Council, isn't there a role and responsibility on these councils to develop that cricket in their region? And they do. Um, to be fair, they do. But do you think that's more that that has gone to the side and be being sort of only a token organization, if you know what I mean, as opposed to the ICC who are more responsible for the for the global development? Yeah, it seems as if a lot of those sort of continental, the Asian Cricket Council, I, I think would probably lead the way in terms of those continental councils. I think they're really the only active kind of body out of all of those regions. I'm pretty sure that the ICC uh, has a lot of, jurisdiction and a lot of decision making in in all the other regions i think icc americas plays a big part there uh icc africa i'm not 100 on top of that situation and i know that europe is is a funny one too i know the asian cricket council because they hold their own competitions yep. uh, and they have their own games and stuff like that it, it definitely helps but i think yeah i think it just kind of goes back to the perceived size of the boards in that part of the world you know they can they can have that the asian cricket council do a role there because there is enough demand and there is enough money involved in it it becomes a viable organization an organization that can do a job at the continental level but if you look at east asia pacific for instance you wouldn't need a, a body like that the, the icc global team which actually the icc global development team which isn't actually a big team in terms of numbers they have a huge outreach in in parts of 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 the world where they they do run a lot of the the, the competitions uh they run a lot of the organizations they consult with their members in those parts of the world and you don't really need a continental middleman and all of that i can kind of see why asia need it because there's a bit more of a demand there's a few bigger members in all of that as well but yeah the icc global development team do an unbelievable job looking to parts of east asia pacific and, and the way that it's delivered there and and don't take anything away from from cricket australia and even the australian government who do certain things in parts of the pacific i know they provide uh, a lot of work in in papua new guinea uh, in parts of the pacific as well it, it's it's an interesting one because yeah the, the those continental kind of bodies have different remits of responsibility, but ultimately the ICC global development team has a really big part to play in, in, in all of those. And there's been some news out recently then um, about a second division possibly in the world for the world test championship. Um, there's been yeah, um, news of the ICC considering regular test matches for, for non WTC four members. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, mixed mixed opinions on this and for good reason because the silence from Afghanistan and Ireland is deafening on this because they spent so much time and effort, yeah. won so many matches, did so much stuff off the field, yeah. made sure that off the field that they were strong enough to be full members provided uh, what was to be first-class competitions for their players in their respective countries. Well, Ireland is, is all Ireland, so Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland. And they have been so frustrated by 
having full membership, but not being a part of the World Test Championship of 19s, as well as Zimbabwe, as we know, and not you know playing enough test matches to really warrant that full membership. Uh, you know, talking to a couple of people in Ireland, especially who they look at test matches and they say, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an honor and a privilege, but it doesn't really get them anywhere, both from a financial standpoint and in terms of their cricket, they're so focused on, on white ball opportunities through world cup qualifications, through the T20 world cup and the one day international world cup that I wouldn't say that test cricket is a chore, but it takes so much of an effort to host a test match or to travel to tour and play in a test match that they're struggling to see if it's even worth it. And, you know, when they're not in the world test championship, you know, what's the point? There's no context for that test match either. That's one thing that the ICC has done right in terms of the ODI super league is that they've provide provided context to one day international bilateral series. And, you know, I'm sure you two as, as huge cricket fans, you know, look back and, and see one day series that had no relevance or meaning or oh, no yeah. bearing had on a lot of those. And, you, and you kind of sit there and you wonder why did those matches mean so much? And now we've got a one day international super league where they contribute to, to world cup qualification, but yeah, you've got nine teams out of 12 full members playing a test championship. You know, yeah. what are those three members supposed to do in all of that? You know, and they've and, worked so hard to get there. Haven't they? That's, yeah. that's 100%. So part of that. Yeah. And, and just before this announcement of this, well, the idea of a second tier, the ICC came out and said that they'd be providing more funding to members who want to host international cricket of that nature without having to, you know, put their hands in their own pockets there. But again, there's no real significance in those matches. And the idea of a second division of four day or five day matches, whatever they intend to do, you know, it's a step backwards for Ireland and Afghanistan. It's great for the neutral and it's great for the other associate members who get to play long format cricket again. You know, there's still an appetite for a lot of these countries wanting to play four-day cricket. A few things would have to happen for it to work well. Mm. But, you know, that I think everyone would kind of just feel a little bit flat knowing that, you know, Afghanistan and Ireland are playing in this competition that's, you know, it is, it's a second tier competition, you know, let's not pretend it isn't after achieving test match status. And then you look back to when they're awarded test match full membership status and you think, well, what was the point? You know, and again, it's, it's the case of the ICC taking two steps forward, but ultimately taking at least one step back, probably two. And, you know, for Ireland and Afghanistan, they would definitely feel like it's two. So yes, it's great for the likes of a couple of those countries who I think would do really well playing four day cricket again, the international intercontinental cup was, was Mm. enjoyable. Um, And, you know, there were some great success stories for that, but members at this point really want to only be doing things that help them on all fronts, financially, logistically benefiting their own cricket. I feel like that particular tournament would be a stopgap measure and, if it's at the detriment of all those members, I don't think there's any point having it. And for Ireland, Afghanistan, especially, I can't see them being too interested. And, you know, sources around have, have, have told, you know, told us that, you know, they're not particularly interested and, you know, can you really blame them? Right. Because, so. you know, yeah. again, yeah. yeah, again, you know, what, what good does it do them? You know, it's essentially a step backwards for them. And yeah. To think, you know, Ireland's inaugural test match against Pakistan, they weren't far away from winning that test match. Um, they had 
think Pakistan maybe three for fifteen or sixteen at they were right in that game. Yep, one sixty yep, odd. Yep. Um, and even the Lords Test match, and they knocked they, England over for nothing for, as well. Yeah, for, for nothing. Mm-hmm. And Tim Murtagh, you know, used all of his Middlesex Lords experience for for that Test match, and it was so incredible to watch. And again, yep. they, they didn't get there. But could you imagine the scenes if they won that Test match? And, and you know, had they had they won that Test match, do you think Ireland would have got a little bit more interest from all the other four members looking for international Test cricket? I would argue that they yep. they would. And for yeah. Afghanistan, we had the test match cancelled here that they were supposed to have last year. Cricket Australia used COVID as their reasoning. Same with the Zimbabwe ODIs. Yeah. 100%. I tend to think that was an excuse, not necessarily a reason. And Cricket Australia still haven't formally announced that Afghanistan test match as yet, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about both parties. Afghanistan yeah. announced it. And they're chomping at the yeah. bit to come out here and play a test cricket. You know, Rashid Khan rolling out Googlies for fun, you know, at Perth or or Hobart, wherever they want to have the test match, would be so great. But you know And, and that's it. I think I can't see it happening. Like I Cricket yeah, Australia's been guilty of that for a few yeah. years. They cancelled that so, Bangladesh test series a few years ago because it wasn't financially yeah. viable enough. You know, as the, last time, it, that's the last time we toured Bangladesh, we lost. We lost you know, the test match. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. then you know we haven't had we haven't hosted te- we haven't hosted Bangladesh in test match. Two thousand and three, two thousand and yeah, two thousand three, two thousand four. And we nearly so, lost there in two thousand and six with a gun side as well. Like when and, these nations are given beat, an opportunity, they can and showcase what they do. And we lost them in that one day game in o, in 05 before the two thousand five yeah, right. Ashes yep. as well. Uh, yep. So, yep. Zimbabwe knocked us over and, and in the T Twenty World Cup. Yes, yeah, so. and I think that's the issue. That's the that's the bigger issue. Is I personally feel that it's most the honest should be on the full members to take care of the almost of almost take care of the associate members than the ICC because ICC can only do so much. It's it's almost I'm I'm probably going to sound like a uni professor here, but it's almost like the buddy system or a mentor system where you can pair one full member with an associate member and then you know pool resources together maybe pool resources together i don't know the answer but almost like what afghanistan have been doing in india where india has been providing them with venues to play cricket and Mm. um you know host matches that sort of stuff and that's where i think the honors and the responsibility should be with the full members and they should be held accountable for that Uh, that that's my personal opinion again yeah And, and the other thing is too if you can control the money and the resources, you ultimately control the history in a way because yep. Australia's hosted India in test match cricket twice in the last three summers. Yep. And the more you play against the Indians, and you know we've got an Ashes series coming up as well, which has been a big part of Australia and England's test history. Let's make no mistake about that. But if we keep hosting England and India in test cricket, that's all it's going to become, you know, mm-hmm. and there's once you control the money and you control the power, you control the discourse, you, you, you control the game. And I can so easily see in, in 10 years from now in a really dystopian way, India, England, and Australia just continuing to bomb along and, and be so far ahead of everyone else in the game. And you already see it in, in the IPL and the IPL is, fantastic for so many reasons you know let's make no mistake about that if if india 
really harness the power of the IPL and their cricket, they'd actually be so much further along than they already are. You know, I, I was thinking about it before, you know, I, I went, I visited India in 2019 and I was actually really surprised by the lack of opportunism in the commercial side of things of Indian cricket. You know, I wanted to collect a jersey from every IPL city that I went to. So I went to Jaipur, which was Rajasthan Territory, Mumbai and Delhi. And every city that I went to, I was like, right, I'm going to buy an IPL jersey from each of those cities. And I looked around and there's just, there's no real market for it. You can't really buy a legitimate jersey from anywhere. They all seem to be kind of knockoffs. And that's just another way that the the BCCI could be commercially viable. You know, it's, it's frightening that the BCCI are nowhere close to reaching their financial potential. No, the BCCI's digital content is non-existent. Exactly. Digital content is, that's nowhere. And we're looking at the glitz and glamour, the very high end of cricket at the IPL. There's so much money. There's so much money in already and it could be double that. As an Indian fan, it just pains me when I see a, a gif or you know a, a just a five second video of a, of a baller just celebrating his wicket and on, on with the caption or oh, he took a wicket i'm like where's sure the, the wicket ev- everyone comments yeah. where's the wicket but they yeah. celebrated last year what did they go 10 million twitter followers that's not an achievement yeah, in my right. opinion for india yeah. yeah well the icc consistently roll out the the metrics of them being the the biggest governing body in terms of its uh, followership is followership a word in terms of their following across mm. the across the world, and yeah, they are. But you still think to yourself, you've got what is it, one point four billion people in India yeah. alone. You harness whatever you can harness out of China and parts of that you know that part of the world. Japan is is a country. I know you asked before, you know, who are the countries in ten years' time that you can see cricket booming. Japan is one. Japan has a cricket city in Sano. Japan mm. qualified for the under-19 World Cup. Yep. There's so much potential there. They're starting to harness it and they're doing it through the idea of marketing and, and social media and exposure that way. If India don't do it and if the ICC don't do it, the people power will catch up to them from all the other countries. It'll just be a case of what the relationship is at the financial table when the money gets divvied out once again, when yep. a few of these associate members do get a little bit bigger and they do get the exposure and they do get the good results on the field. It only takes 11 good players to get a good result on the field. Yep. And from there, it, it, it's going to be very interesting in, in 15, 20 years down the line, if we do see a couple of emerging powers in the game, because it will completely change the dynamic of the voting system, the, the hierarchy of cricket and, and ultimately how cricket is portrayed. From, from Ultimately, what you'd standpoint. have, you'd have more high-profile series. You'd have more That's lucrative correct. series yeah. of these countries coming to you, and it means even better news for you. Yeah, it's, it's. I think we are at a fork in the road at the moment, where in twenty years' time, the the two destinies that I can see cricket having are completely different. We either yeah. see a continuation of what we're seeing already now, where we see three or four countries dominating the international landscape. We see a couple of plucky challenges here and there pop up every four years, every eight years or whatever, who eventually realize, you know, look, it's, we just can't do it. You know, that all the cards are stacked against us. The hand that we get is never good enough to, to win in this, yeah. you know, big 
card game that is international cricket and they just give up. And then, you know, India, Australia, England become richer because of that, because of all the, the people who have failed in the long run. And I would like to think that the cricket needs to be very much similar to the open market where, you know, we need competition to be great. You know, cricket needs perceived strong countries all the way across the board for it to be a good product. You know, we don't want to see in the 2023 World Cup, Australia, England, India in the semifinal, and then say New Zealand. Is that what, That's what we had in 2019, right? So we saw yep. the direct consequence of all the issues that we have in international cricket yes. in a microcosm that was the World Cup. You know, we spoke, it was we speak a microcosm about, of what the world... Yep game is in general Correct. right and 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 the argument for the 10 team world cup was are oh, not competitive enough but then as you mentioned previously was if it wasn't for that sri lanka england result we would have had the uh, top yeah. four um you know decided two weeks before the playoff um before the semi-finals yeah. i mean it's it's impossible i've always said it it's impossible to expect nations who don't get opportunities enough opportunities in the four-year period between world cups to tell them to go to a world cup and say hey come on we expect you to be a bit more competitive against these big boys. Yeah. Um, you know what? You're not good enough. Ten teams. They've, they uh, haven't yeah, done enough. It, it's, haven't done enough to grow the game. It's weird. Like it's it's this game of poker where yeah. India are holding pocket aces and they're looking at the Netherlands who are you know two seven off suit, and they're like, why aren't you guys winning? <laughs> well, obviously these are the cards that they keep getting right, and of course it's just it's just got to be. It's a timing thing for a lot of these associate countries and lower form member nations where that four-year period, they just got to hope that they have a golden period of, of international players in that group. And, you know, I'd like to think at, at the at the T20 World Cup at the end of the year, I would like to think that there are a couple of countries who yeah. are very much in their golden period and they can cause an upset. You know, I look at a couple of players, I look at the team Namibia will put out in the first round of the T20 World Cup. Yep. I look at the team that the Dutch will put out for the T20 World Cup. I look at the team that Scotland are going to put out. And I, and I say, look, you know, there are, there are scenarios where they will do very well in the competition. Oman is another example of that. Yep. But again, you know, the, the system is made for them to fail. You know, they've got to get through yeah. a first round before they even get into the Super 12 stage of, of the T20 World Cup. Right. So yep. they're going to be playing cricket before they even get to oh, no. play, you know, the full members. So, yeah, it's it's a frustration. And and on one side, you can almost understand why India are like, well, okay, let's make it so the best teams qualify through this part of through this part of the tournament to play in the Super Twelve format. But, I mean, what's stopping it from being a sixteen-team tournament and just having the same number of games? Mm. You know, you you could probably make so many se several different formats which would work and would keep everyone happy about the exposure of their team yeah. of their board and and ultimately you know the, the viewership would be up across the board but yep. you know we're in this reality where you know people have control and they're taking it away from other people for the sake of, yeah. of their benefit and and just just the put my personal belief has been for for a few years now and it has gr only grown stronger over the years is all this discussions that we, we as fans keep having about the world test championship, the super league, 
uh, why nations like you know Netherlands, Scotland are not that are not doing that well is is somewhere related to the emergence of T20 cricket. T20 cricket has been absolutely brilliant where it has gone into the households of these countries as well, you know, countries like Netherlands, Scotland, those smaller nations. But that also has given the power to in countries like India and Australia to make a you know multi-billion dollar industry out of cricket. And that's where yeah, yeah, yeah. India it's has a double India, sword, Australia, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly that. I think too, and and it's it's something that we do touch on quite a bit where an associate player will be in the form of his or her life and will play in a franchise league. And because they're from an associate nation, if they don't perform in say the first two games that they play, they're more vulnerable to be hooked. Yep. They're more, they're more likely to be dropped by their team. than say, if you pick, I don't know, let's say Chris Gale, for instance, if Chris Gale has two bad games to start an IPL, you normally say to yourself, Oh, He'll come good eventually. We'll, we'll Glenn just, Maxwell you know, didn't we'll, even hit a six last year and played yeah, right up until the yeah. last game. Yeah, and he got paid an absolute ton of money this year. And to be honest, I I was all for it because I think we all know how good Glenn Maxwell can be. Sure. But it's the long leash that he gets as well. You know, he's a guy from Australia. He's one of the best all-rounders in the world. Yep. He'll earn a ton of money playing cricket because, you know. All the data and analysis tells us that eventually he'll come good. Yeah. Unfortunately, on the other side of things, associate members, they'll have a really good tournament. You know, Paul Sterling finally got a chance at the PSL this year before COVID hit again, and he made runs. And I think he had, I think he might have had one game where I think he might have failed early. They dropped him, and then he only got another game again because someone might have been injured. And he came out and he made runs. Now, if you picked, and stuck with Paul Sterling, there's every chance that he would have put up massive totals throughout the tournament. But we do see this trend of, okay, Sandeep Lamachani might be an example where he plays for Delhi in the IPL. He doesn't take a wicket in two games. And then they're like, well, we're going to pick Armit Mishra now because he's tried and tested. He's played enough cricket at this level and he takes wickets. And then the next year, Armit Mishra gets re-signed. Sandeep doesn't get signed. Amit Mishra is at the back end of his career in his mid to late 30s. Sandeep Lamachane is 21. You know, he's got the world at his feet. They will go for the tried and tested because there's so much data to suggest that Amit Mishra is the player that they want. And it also doesn't, you know, help Sandeep that he's a foreign player. And, Correct. You know, yeah. Yeah. That the That's Indian right. players will ultimately get precedent there. That's probably not the best example for me. But if you were to look at, really good associate cricketers who have had a chance at T20 franchise level, if they've failed once, they're more than likely going to be dropped for the next game. Whereas if you had a high-end full member player in that same spot, even if he was of the same perceived ability, he would more than likely be uh, allowed to, to give himself or herself a couple of games to make sure that he's sort of in that flow of cricket and, and eventually yep. they come good, but we just don't see that, you know, George Munns is an example where I think he played in the CPL failed a couple of times, got binned JJ Smith played in Canada, went for a few runs, got binned. Everyone else went for a lot of runs too, yep. but it was him that was made, you know, the fall mm. guy and all of it. So there is this perceived, you know, superiority complex of, 
full member cricket as well, where, you know, you could have Shane Warne playing for Scotland, yep. but he plays for Scotland. And it's like, oh, well, you know, he didn't take a wicket in this game. Oh, he's Scottish, you know, he can't be that good. It's, it's not how it works, but it's unfortunately how full membership and that hierarchy kind of see the game from, from the top looking down. That's, that's actually a perfect segue into my next question, which is who do you think are the best players to watch out for in the next five to 10 years in, in associate cricket and um, in emerging cricket countries? How long do you have? <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got plenty. I've got plenty. Name, name uh, maybe top, top two or three. Okay. Uh, whew, I can't really go past, and there's probably a little bit of recency bias here because he just made an unbeaten 100 against South Africa emerging, but JJ Smith is a bowling all-rounder yep. from Namibia who is an outstanding cricketer. You know, I'm running out of superlatives. He's the only bowling all-rounder I've ever seen with the most class inside-out cover drive I've ever seen. It's just impeccable. He's a tall fellow. He's probably six. He'd be at least six two, six three. He's quick on the pull shot when it's bowled short. He's a good driver of the ball and he bowls left arm seam across the right hander or into the right hander if you need him to go that way. Very multifaceted. He had a chance in Canada at the Global T20, didn't quite take it. I just can't see him not getting picked somewhere again soon. Uh, Herod Erasmus of Namibia as well is probably, if he's not the best bat in associate cricket at the moment, he's probably in the top two or three, just technically class. Ian Bell style cover drive there, which is just, you know, you don't want to give English too much credit, but it's, you know, probably the most gorgeous shot in yeah. international cricket, the Ian yeah. Bell cover drive. Uh, I like the look of Bill Khan uh, from Oman. He's a left arm quick who has really good control of his Yorker attempts at the world cup qualifier in 2019. He was, well, he, it was basically unfair to every other, um, every other player in that tournament by just how good he was at executing his, his Yorker. Uh, I'd probably throw Sandeep Lamachane again in there as a, as a spin option. Uh, he's played at the highest level in, in franchise cricket. And yep. yeah, he's more than capable. And he's, and he's proven it around the world. And he's still in his early 20s. And there's a couple of really good young players coming through from Nepal at the moment. Kushal Bertel's just become, uh, I think, one of two players. I think the other is Dawood Milan to score four T20i 50s in their first 50 uh, first five T20 international innings and he's done it at a strike rate of something insane and he's 17 years old or something and was, he player, Mala, was he player of the series in that tri-series was it I him? think he was yeah he was wasn't then, it? yeah yeah he was and then Kushal Mala who's in the middle order for Nepal he's just broken the record for the youngest T20i 50 and he already held the the one day international record for that as well. At fifteen, as a, I think, as a fifteen yeah. year old. So yeah. there are there, there are a lot of a lot of quality players in that part of the world. Is do you think these players should almost not be responsible, but carry the torch of cricket in their countries where their cricketing boards can almost take that advantage and get them those marketing endorsements and you know get the, get their faces onto the TVs and into the print medias of these households in these countries. Yeah. I think it's an overall focus in the associate world at the moment where they're only truly now starting to harness the power of social media and marketing. I think in the last two to three years, we've seen quite an uptick of, of attention in associate member countries. Brazil is an example where, 
Roberta Moretti Avery, who's the women's national captain, she's yeah. all over social media at the moment. Yeah. You know, she was a big part right. in Brazil launching central contracts. She's a big part of the attention of associate women's cricketers and <laughs> Thailand at the women's world, uh, the at the women's T20 World Cup was another example of that. You know, not many people will forget Sonner and Tipoch's smile, you know, as the captain of the Thai women's team anytime soon. She's just, uh, well, she's just been replaced as the, as the T20, uh, as the national women's captain, I think by Naramal Chaiwai uh, in the last 24 hours or so. So that's, that's recent news. But yeah, I think you're, you're right. I think a lot of these players will benefit from that attention, but ultimately that comes down comes down to, to them as well. And yep. there are countries where, you know, there is a bit more attention on them, even for associate members, you know, Paris Kadka yeah. for Nepal probably has yeah. hundreds of thousands of quality player of, of followers on Instagram and, and Twitter, but it will be a case of, yeah, of these members, associate members pushing forward the great exponents of their game, which is the players, you know, the players are yep. the most important part yep of of cricket you know without personalities what is cricket you know we we have so many sort of moments in international matches between two players you know a bowler v bat fielder it doesn't matter you know in what respect it is you know these people are ultimately what is going to push the game forward and yeah again moving back to kind of associate members they're definitely thinking more from a marketing standpoint in terms of garnering attention. Yep. Uh, but ultimately it's the performance on the field, which we'll talk, you know, more than, than, than anything else. So it becomes a case of, yeah, these players, you know, getting into the gym, going to the nets every day, doing what they need to, to, to get to the next level. And ultimately, you know, putting their country on the map as a T20 franchise player in a league or as part of their country trying to, to reach the next level of the game. Sandeep's flown the flag in, in T20 franchise cricket. And I think Nepali cricket on the whole has really benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we see more and more Sandeep's from around the associate world, I think the chat starts to change instead of, you know, it being a novelty of a Nepali playing in a T20 league, it becomes the norm. And once it becomes the yep. norm, it changes the language. It changes the idea of, of, of what it is to be a cricketer in, in these leagues. And it, it probably breaks down the stigma of, you know, you don't have to be from a full member country to be good at cricket. And yep. yeah, that, 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 that's what everyone's trying to, to achieve. And it, it's slowly happening. Not as fast as I was, as I would like to see it happen, but yeah, without that, without that personality and without that attention, you, you don't get the attention, you know, you don't get yeah. that opportunity. So it's really important to, to harness all of that. P- perfect case in point would be Rashid Khan and Mohamed Nabi for Afghanistan. Yeah. The way, the way they have been harnessed as those, you know, Afghani players who have come from hard backgrounds and now they are playing, you know, T20 cricket all over the world. That that's what, you know, that's what we as fans would love to see more of. Mm. Absolutely. And without them, do we, do we get Mujib? Do we see, yep. you know, Khan? do we see yeah. Noor? Do we see Case Ahmad? You know, there's a very good chance, you know, without those two pioneers, of course, we don't see the rest of them. That That's, that's the attention that, you know, yep. these potential players in the future have. Because speaking of attention, we'll, we'll end with this final question. Um, how do you think emerging cricket associate cricket can be made more accessible to the world? 
from a coverage and broadcast point of view because a lot of the time we don't get access to this stuff around the globe and it's mm. very limited. Can can we take advantage of more, you know, YouTube, social media, get get that message across, get yep. more eyeballs on the action? What's your take on that? So the big news in the last couple of months is that the ICC opened up the tender rights process for the qualifying events, the pathway events to the 2023 World Cup and yep. the future, sorry, excuse me, and the future T20 World Cups down the line. And I think whoever ends up picking up those rights, I understand IMG bought them, but I think there's more of a process to, to how that's being produced. There's f- something like 550 games of international cricket that is going to be played on those streams via YouTube or for a very nominal fee to everyone around the world. And, you know, that's ultimately the exposure that the game needs. I think of course. in parts of the associate world, they're starting to harness the power of and the advent of streaming. And we've come to realize in international cricket, you only really need a minimum of maybe four cameras and some decent audio and you can provide a product that people will watch. Absolutely. And uh, there are a number of companies around the world that, that provide this. Uh, I think Frogbox got a mention last week by, by Toby. That's one that, that does stuff just, you know, streaming club games here in Australia and, and parts yeah. of the world. I think they did stuff for Japan. I think they might've shown Japan club cricket and to just make it accessible, you know, YouTube is the perfect platform for that. And even selling the rights, you know, selling your rights to prospective companies would generate income. So 100%. Cricket Association of Nepal for this recent tri-series have sold the rights to, to several rights holders around the world. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the price that the consumers had to pay for that, that, you know, was, was, you know, a drop in the ocean. So there are so many opportunities in terms of the advent of streaming, but also things like fantasy, fantasy sport, and even, and, and I know we're, we're probably dealing in a few more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A few, we're, we're delving into a couple more issues on this front, but the idea of, of gambling and, the, and, the, and yep. the advent of gambling and opening up, you know, gambling opening up in, in India and parts of, of, of the world. I think if that's harnessed properly, that can be a big money spinner for cricket, providing that it's not, you know, being stuck down the throats of, of the public. I think, you know, us three in Australia would all agree that, you know, the advertising of, of gambling agencies in Australia at the moment is it's unbelievable. Ridiculous. You know, it's yeah. wherever you turn, it's, it's somewhere. And there's about 20 betting agencies in this country alone trying to sell you a product. But I do think if that's done in the right way, and again, there, there are several you know, obstacles in all of that. If that's done properly, there's potential there too. I mean, we wouldn't want that to be you know, the predominant income stream for international cricket. I think cricket is the best product to, to sell to people. There are so many opportunities though. And yeah, going back, uh, you guys talking about YouTube and, and the power of, of that stream. And all it would take would be, yeah, four, four or five cameras on a stream, it being sponsored by um, a few companies around in that part of the world yep. and just showing ads, just showing ads in, in over breaks. You know, that's all it takes. It's not rocket science. In, in terms of television, you know, cricket's done it for 50, 50 years now. 
you know, yep. World Series cricket was pioneering then. And it's to a degree, you know, we're still, we're still inspired by World Series cricket now and how cricket mm. is portrayed now. You know, it doesn't have to be ad-free exclusive cricket. You know, if you need to chuck an ad in between overs, by all means, go ahead. You know, we kind of laugh about it you know, at Emerging Cricket, watching the Nepali stream for, for series and watching the Nepali ads. And it's great. You know, you, you get to see another part of the, of the culture you wouldn't see before as well. Yeah, so, 100%. you know, you don't, you don't lose anything from that. You know, you, you don't lose anything from having an ad-free game and no one talking in an ad break anyway. Yep. So you might yep. as well have something in, wedged in between. You know, and, and you, if, you, that's, yep. if that's another financial opportunity, then... Perfect. You make it, it accessible. It, you get the viewers. Yeah. People will tune in. You get your sponsors on board. You get the revenue from it. It helps it everyone makes involved. Sense. It yeah. helps everyone. So, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. This is oh, it has to be one of my favorite interviews that I've ever been a part of. Um, Definitely. It's been, it's been absolutely magnificent. Thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful, wonderful insights, taking the time out on your Sunday night in sydney uh we really appreciate it mate and all the best with what you do you're doing amazing stuff you and and, and the emerging cricket team um thank keep you. it up yep. thank you uh, so much wouldn't want to be doing anything else boys happy to talk cricket at, at any time Absolutely. and yeah looking forward to the world cup coming up and yeah hopefully from an emerging cricket point of view we see mm. you know one of those qualifiers go on and, and really make a big push in that in that tournament would be would be really cool to see i'm expecting something good to happen from from an emerging cricket perspective because there's the talent there and you know, someone's going to make a name for themselves. There'll be an upset course somewhere. So we're looking forward to it. Thanks, Dan.